Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Collector's Corner. And we have another instance of Creator's Corner. Today, we are going to be talking to Jack Lally of Sansa, the founder of Sansa. Just quick introductions. First, my name is P. You may know me online as at Aston Cloud. I'm solo today. My normal co-host, Jared, couldn't make it, but so happy to be talking to you, Jack. I'm super excited for this conversation. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited to chat. I've been been looking forward to it. It's the the end to what is a, a busy week. So yeah, it's, it's exciting. Good, good. I'm really, really looking forward to it as well, because you, you've really been crushing it with Sansa. I've been saying it on Discord, we were chatting a little bit before, you guys seem to be all over the place and it's a small team. I know you do a lot of the heavy lifting, you founded it. So really impressed by you. Wanted to start off by saying that. And just a tiny bit of house cleaning for everybody listening. This is a video episode. We're going to be showing some stuff on screen. If you can't make it, don't worry about it. If you can't watch it, I should say, it'll be on the podcast as well. We also have timestamps. Open up the description in YouTube. Go to the show notes in your podcast app. We have timestamps so you can jump to the part that you're interested in. And finally, check out our newsletter. We have a weekly newsletter, Substack, and it'll help you keep up on the gen art market. Five minutes to your inbox. All right. All that other way, let's quickly... I wanted to just super quickly introduce Sansa to folks in case they're not aware. So Sansa is an NFT marketplace. It is built specifically for art collectors. And there's a lot going into that. A lot of uh, really current events like we were talking about that we'll get to, including royalties, Sansa honors royalties, and has a lot of cool features that are specific for art collections, such as allowing you to generate the uh, like out of bounds outputs or different outputs from different collections algorithms. So you can see what you might get. And even when the collection's out, you could see what different variations could have been. So for people who only listen to the first five minutes, no matter what you do, go check out sansa.xyz, S-A-N-S-A. And now Jack, let's, let's transition. Cause I love to hear these things chronologically. And I wanted to hear about, you know, like, where did you grow up and when did art and technology become a part of your life? Oh, it's a good question. I, um, so I grew up here in England. I'm originally from Manchester. Um, so I live in London now, but it's, you know, sort of three hours north. Um, in a relatively small town, I moved from Manchester to a relatively small town and um, spent a lot of time on the computer, I think, in, in adolescence. And I think art in general, like graphic design and art kind of, fell into my life by being, you know, a kid in the early Xbox days and, you know, just being online, being around computers, wanting to edit my own videos together or, or you know, kind of put together graphic designs. I used to sell signatures was like one of those early kind of, you know, side hustle things um, for forums back in the day, which was like a common thing and definitely not lucrative. Kids back in the day would do those things and sell them for a couple of dollars. Um, but yeah, it was a whole lot of fun, like this whole community. I think I became part of early internet communities around design and that kind of flowed through into everything. Got it. Got it. And were you visiting museums or exposed to art as a child as well? Like not just online, but in real life? No, not really. So my, I, I think my first kind of taste into getting more serious about art, I went to college here in the UK um and did graphic design which part of my modules within that was fine art so we did kind of a ton of stuff there around both visiting and studying of like classic fine art or impressionism or these different things um it wasn't until then that i kind of got more seriously into art um and i would say that was kind of more where it flowed through but i i think design and in general like graphics has been a huge part of my life since you know mid like my mid-teenage years Got it, got it. And, and what about the technical side? Because before we started recording, you were telling me that you are the main developer for Sansa, which is super impressive technically. When did that enter your life? Yeah, I don't want to say main developer for Sansa because Matt will <laughs> Matt will kill me. But um, Matt is also a, a great engineer, definitely a better engineer than I am. But, um, but yeah, I, I started... So my whole life, I've been kind of a designer more focused. So... Um, design was like my proficiency that's where I've kind of worked throughout the years when I was when I was kind of 18 19 years old I became super super interested in kind of the tech world in tech startups and as part of that was desperately trying to get engineers to build my designs 
Um, and it was actually, I think it was Kevin Rose, believe it or not, like completely unrelated. Now he's in Web3 and, and all the rest of it. But I remember being 18, 19 years old. And I think I read a, an article that contained kind of snippets from an interview where he mentioned how, and maybe it wasn't him, but it, I think it was like early dig and him mentioning how he basically learned to code because he tried to get people to build his thing for like a year and then gave up and was just like, oh, well, I've just, I've got no other option, right? I've got to do it myself. And I felt a similar pattern where I had all these ideas. I was like, this young kid, super interested in tech. And I'm like, I'm going to build this huge startup. Um, and then got hit with the reality of like, nobody wants to build an idea that's not theirs generally. It's a hard sell um to go around and the classic kind of non-technical co-founder thing of being like hey dude i've got this idea it's going to change the world like you should build it and i'll do the design and, and we're good and it's there was a real slog and it, it never kind of worked out and in the end they just gave up and i was like okay i'll do it myself right like I, i'm gonna figure it out i'm gonna i'm gonna start learning to code and i did and i fell in love with programming and then programming became far more serious part of my life i program a lot more than i, I time that i spend designing nowadays but um yeah i just kind of fell into it ultimately without other options well first off i want to say to matt that when before we started recording you did not say you were the lead engineer that was my <laughs> that was that was coming yes. from me i uh, tried to promote yeah. our guests but that's really amazing that you took that initiative to go ahead and do that. And you know, what's so funny, this we were talking about briefly, like, I feel like I'm in a bit of a similar situation where I'm like, Oh, this thing's gonna be so cool. But I'm just gonna have to pick it up myself. But I did have to learn programming. I'm, I'm older than you a, a while ago, back in engineering school, back then, we were learning C, I don't think we were even really on JavaScript and, and Python back then. So I learned C, which was painful with the pointers and stuff, but it, it's still fun. So I, I totally hear you on that. And that resonates with me. So you're 19, 20, you've come to this realization, hey, I'm going to have to at least take the first step programming by myself, which ended up being great because you enjoy it. What were you trying to build back then? Yeah, so I actually built this is so I finished college um, back up north. This is kind of how I ended up in London. So I finished um, my college. I did design. I did fairly well in design and ended up getting job offers um, like in the States or down here in London for, for kind of more product design, like interface design. And um, I said to my parents, I kind of said to them, okay, I want to build my own thing. And my dad was like, you can build your own thing, but you've got three months, right? Like you can't just live here and be like, you're going to build things and like spend forever trying to build random stuff and not pay any rent, not do any of that stuff. And he was like, you can try something, something for three months. Um, and if you're able to make something out of it, then fair play. If not, you go and get a job. Like you need to go get a job. And I was like, okay, three months, I've got this, all the, all the ambition and, and kind of, excitement and i was thinking I've, I've got this is so good and at the time this is going back so this was really early um when kind of reddit was fairly newer um and there was no reddit clients or like nothing on mobile that was like reddit it was really early iphone to be honest as well and um i decided that i was going to build essentially what was reddit on the new medium of the phone, right? Like I was going to basically just the same business, right? Build this kind of social network. Um, and I made a complete mess of it. I learned to program iPhone apps, which was, you know, fascinating and interesting for, for three months. But from a business and startup perspective, I made a complete mess of it. I built, I, I what had happened is I read like previously as a as sort of a 17 year old, 18 year old, I'd read uh, some of the cross hacker news and like paul graham's early articles so i was fully yc pilled i would walk around spouting quotes from paul graham essays probably insufferable to be around just repeatedly um saying these things but i remember i spent the whole of that first three months essentially i would i would build out a piece of the product i would spend way too much time obsessing over things that didn't really matter like as a designer what color an icon like a selected icon was going to be and and then I'd go downstairs and my parents would be like, how's it going? And I'd be like, yeah, it's going well. The thing that you've got to think about, guys, is you've got to focus on this MVP, like the minimum viable product. And I'd spout all this stuff that I wasn't implementing at all, but like I'd read it, it sounded great. 
I, I kind of hadn't lived the learn lessons at that point, right? To like build um, products effectively. And I basically spent three months just building a passion, a passion project, learn to code on iPhone. And obviously it went nowhere and I ended up being forced to go and get a job and, and kind of moved to London and started working with startups here in London. Got it. Got it. Well, look, those are some of the growing pains and, you know, to some extent, three months is, uh, probably it could have been a lot longer. It's a good thing. Maybe that your dad put those constraints on you. It's definitely a good thing. I could have spent two years changing icon colors at, at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, so that sounds like it was a great experience. Then when you went to London to work in startups, did you join in an engineering capacity or a design capacity? Yeah. So when I, I got pretty lucky, actually, when I first moved to London, I joined, I started work. I'm trying to think which place I worked first. I worked at a, um, they found a, a kind of a company found me through my like online portfolio, like Behance uh, sort of stuff at the time. And I, I had a few different people reach out and this, this company reached out to me and they were a fund here in London, kind of like, um, but kind of like an accelerator, but this was, I guess, pre accelerator times like before that was really a thing it was some form of like venture incubator where this rich russian oligarch had basically decided that he was going to build all these different products and he was funding these teams and they were going to work from what was essentially a basement in central london um and they reached out to me they're like hey we'd love you to come and basically do design on all these different teams um, and like various different work, whether it was, I, I also did kind of video and um, all sorts of different pieces. So you're like, we want you to hop from team to team doing like interface design or whatever the different thing was at the time. And um, I went and I did that and it was, it was great experience because I got to work with all these different teams and like do lots of different things. Um, but yeah, it was definitely, it was a great insight to see all these teams doing completely different things and running into the same feeling problems right again and again um and it was a, it was an interesting environment for sure <laughs> definitely a, an interesting first place to work yeah and actually i meant to ask you this earlier because it strikes me that there's people in our audience who are thinking about building things as well uh two questions for you one is how long did it take for you to get to a point where you could code like passively, right? Where, where you could actually like building something that could go out and, and be live. And then my second question is based on your experience here with the incubator, what were those common mistakes that you kept seeing that perhaps folks are, are struggling with right now who are listening? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, in terms of programming, I did, I did sort of one of, I did a bunch of kind of in-person programming lessons like what was an early boot camp style thing um which definitely helped move me along and at the time we were using technology like like rails which was like far easier to get off the ground because it's there's so much magic um behind the scenes that like honestly i built a lot of things without actually knowing what was going on behind the scenes um and i think to some degree you can you can get away with a lot of that even today um so I would say it took me maybe, I think, I think three months is a reasonable amount of time. Um, I think it's even more reasonable if you start with an end goal in mind. And when I built the iPhone app, for example, um, I didn't, like, I, I knew nothing about coding iPhone apps. Um, I was just convinced that I knew what I wanted to build. And it's kind of, you know, one small step in front of the other to get there, um, which makes it a lot easier. And I think that process will work even better today. Um, I'm not a big fan of the, like, go and, and get really into the basics of like, oh, you know, learn your types like a string and, and do these different things. I think you'll learn them on the way and you can kind of supplement that knowledge, but have an idea and like, be like, I'm going to go and build this thing and just figure it out. I think that really is the best way. I still advocate for that now, like just kind of figure it out, um, have something in mind for sure. And then in terms of the biggest problems I saw with those early startups at that time it's hard i think the biggest problem that i would see is that people spend far i think generally this is the problem a lot of time people spend a lot of time building things um and not enough time validating those things and it's 
so so easy to do in tech like it is honestly the, like the easiest thing in the world to do with tech businesses it's far harder and you'll fail far quicker if you do like brick and mortar businesses or you did e-commerce or anything with a long lead time to create products you can't afford to do that um getting things out often and early and you know failing again and again and iterating to something that's valuable and, and working towards something that's valuable i think is the key and i saw way too many of those companies have the big vision idea and start really big um and i think you want to go really niche and expand out from there as opposed to being like hey we're going to be nike you want to be like a specific shoe for like a specific athlete in a, like a really specific niche that's so small of a market that like it doesn't make sense for them to even bother with you anyway um like and then eventually art. you know like generative art exactly so you kind of start in in an area um and, and kind of work your way out i think you can all like most businesses can essentially if they're in a good market and they're doing they start with something that's really valuable to a new set of people it, it is easy to get to a, a bigger vision piece it, i think you're far less likely to fail on the fact you can't like broaden a business um and far more likely to go wrong if you're trying to start a broad business and and go the opposite way around um and i saw that a ton a ton of those companies they try and you know reinvent huge huge pieces of tech or huge huge businesses um and not just start really small yeah that makes sense and i wonder how much of that has to do with this almost like paranoia maybe that you're not going after a big enough market and you're not going to be able to raise and you have to tell some story about like a 20 billion dollar total addressable market or nobody will seed fund you or and stuff like that but i i completely agree i think this art of starting a cash flowing business at first and then growing from there is a little underutilized and i know a lot of products and technologies require startup capital to even get to revenue so it's not always an option but it seems like these days increasingly with technology and products out there you can do things for a lot cheaper than you could before and potentially get to cash flow even for a tech business and you know, talking about generative art as a niche, I was also thinking about ourselves, you know, with, with Collector's Corner. And it's it's interesting, there's some parallels in terms of like trying out different things and seeing what works because our product is is information and doesn't really cost a lot to think it up. It just takes some time to put it together. But in a lot of ways, it's similar, which is which is cool. But okay, so coming back to your story, Web3, when, when does Web3 enter all of this? So I, I think prior to Web3, like crypto in general, um, crypto enters very early and follows a repeating pattern of um, getting into it, seeing some opportunity arise and ignoring it to return back to startups and being like, nah, I, I want to go back to real tech businesses that like I'm used to, you know, I live in that world. This thing seems really exciting, but I don't know where it's going to go. And I do that repeatedly over the period of like 10 years. Um, so it goes, it goes way back. But I think first was kind of, I heard about Bitcoin on Hacker News, um, kind of got into the space and started playing around with with like early Bitcoin stuff. And I was interested in that. There wasn't much to build. I mean, I'm always looking for things to build. I'm always excited to build stuff. And throughout my career and my life, I've always built different things. Um, but yeah, I think early Bitcoin got in, didn't, um, do too much on like the building front was like, no, nah, I'm not sure this is the right thing. Jumped back out, went back into traditional businesses. Um, fast forward kind of just around the Ethereum launch. So, so 2015, um, jumped back in, was fascinated by Ethereum. And I, I did build on Ethereum, um, back in sort of early 2015. And I, I think it was early 2015. It, it was very early. I mean, there was no viable products on ethereum at the time like there was no real businesses that existed at this point on ethereum um one of the most exciting products was a website called etherroll which was basically a dice roll like gambling game um but it would do it via the smart contract tech so you'd like put in like point one you click roll and it'd take two to three minutes to find out if you won or didn't win um, and you either lost and the smart contract took your money or you won and it sent money back. So it was like really early times then. And I ended up building a 
I thought it was fascinating. And one of the businesses that I loved on, um, I mean, on, on Bitcoin was there was this business that I thought was really interesting called Prime Dice. And they, again, like a gambling company. It's funny, I'm not a gambler, like I don't gamble. Um, so it wasn't necessarily the gambling. I think it was the tech that was interesting. So they, I don't know whether they necessarily invented the system, but they were using this system, which was provably fair gambling. So it was the idea that essentially, and it was using cryptography to do it, but originally when you make a bet on like a normal betting site, um, you don't know what's going on behind the scenes, right? Like you don't know when you place your bet that the back end isn't like let him win once and then make him lose 10 times, right? Like no one knows that system. And they were using a system called provably fair gambling, where essentially they would provide hashes and you could use those hashes to reverse engineer the outcome of your bet. So you knew you were given a fair shot, right? You knew you were given the odds you were told you were given. Um, I just found that fascinating. And I built that on Ethereum like a, a similar thing to that on Ethereum, got to the point of going to launch it. And I, I spoke to a lawyer here in London and I was like, okay, gambling's illegal in a lot of places, like lots of countries and um, not to mention like New York. So I went to uh, him and I was like, can I make it available everywhere on the internet? And then if New York send me a cease and desist letter saying like, hey, people from New York are using your gambling site, you need to make it not available in New York. Like if they send me that letter, I can hold my hands up and go, okay, no problem. We'll shut it down. So people from New York IPs can't, can't visit it. And the idea was like, it's easier to do that than it is to make it available in like one country and figure out the rules of every country. Um, and he just laughed and he was like, no, you can't do that. He was like, you won't get like a nice letter from New York. He was like, you just can't go to New York because um, you will be arrested. And I was like, okay, I like building things, but I don't like, I don't like building things enough that I'm willing to go to jail or I'm willing to compete with sort of scary, um, like the scary underworld, I think, that, that follows around gambling. And I, I was like, I'm, I'm going to take my leave here. And I went back into, again, back to traditional startups. And it wasn't until I think two or three years later with like the invention of NFTs or, you know, the, the kind of NFTs coming around that a friend of mine kind of pulled me back in and was like, hey, you should check out this stuff that's happening. It was like early rareable time. Um, and we made some NFTs and, and sold them. And it was like a fascinating um, experience. It was and I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. Um, but again, didn't stop me from kind of doing that process and, and then being like, I'm still not sure. Like, I'm going to go back to my tech starts and, and I'll come back again. Um, it wasn't that, until maybe 18 months ago, yeah, that I got serious. I was going to say that totally resonates with me. I feel very similarly having been exposed to, well, really the idea of Bitcoin way back in like 2012 and then in 2015 actually buying it, but not learning about it. And then in 2017, really understanding Ethereum and participating in a lot of the craziness that happened there. But I, I really was thinking about going to switch careers at the time, but I didn't. And that's that's why I'm here now. And that's probably part of why you're here now. So when did you eventually decide to jump in? And was Sansa the first foray or were you doing other stuff first? No. So the first time, so we did get into, um, me and my friend got into like doing NFTs around early wearable. And we were kind of, at the time I was doing the design stuff. So I was like making these like cards that you were selling. Um, and it was at the time it did reasonably well, but the market just very quickly became like saturated, wearable, didn't have great discovery, all these things. It wasn't until I think about a year later um, that we built I built some tech more seriously around, again, it was still a side project, but I built some stuff in the space of decentralized social media. Um, and at the time I built some stuff, it like, it just took off. Um, it was like a weekend project. I built this thing where essentially it was for one of the smaller ecosystems. I built like a way to see all the different things being built on it. Um, purely a weekend, you know, 48 hour thing. And it just really took off. 
Um, and that's when seeing that take off and everything happening prior, that was kind of a, a point for me to be like, okay, I'm going to build more seriously into this. And I went down uh, and Matt at the same time kind of built that hackathon stuff with me. And we started to go down that wave and we built all sorts of different stuff in, in this ecosystem. And um, they, it was, it was great. It was just way too early for decentralized social. Like I, I'm a big advocate of the idea that social media needs to be decentralized. And there's a lot of players right now, like Farcaster and Leinster and all, all sorts of, and DSO themselves um, doing stuff. But I, um, I just think it's, it's pretty early still. Um, and we found that although we built a lot of stuff that did really well, relative at the time within its ecosystem, it hit like the ceiling of the ecosystem, right? Like we very quickly found we were building things and it would grow, it would continue to grow until like there was no more users left in the ecosystem to adopt the product. And it was not at a point where you could turn that into something sustainable. Um, and that's when we kind of turned our attention back more to ETH and we started building on ETH. Um, and that was about 12 months ago, I'd say. Okay, got it. And when did you decide or come up with the idea for Sansa? Like when did art NFTs jump in the picture? And really generative art? Because I, I think you all have broadened, but at first I feel like it was more gen art. Now there's AI, et cetera. And I also say this in the context of, of what you just mentioned, that some of these ecosystems you were building in before were not big enough. And I think that even nine months ago, or I guess is around the time you decided on gen art, the gen art market may not have seemed big enough either. So I'd love to hear that story and how are you thinking about the the gen art market itself? Yeah, I think the even even though gen art market in general compared to like the NFT space, um, like the fine art NFT market is actually much bigger than people realize um, generally. We're looking at like billions of dollars. When I talk about these other projects, generally, like the ceiling was like much, much lower than that. We're talking about like building on Canto now, for example, or something like that, like really small niche stuff where you could build the best, like you could build OpenSea on Canto, but like it's still, there's a small ceiling to that business where it's not going to be able to right now generate significant revenue. And you could bet that long-term it's going to play out. But I, again, I just think it was, from that perspective, it was way too early to kind of even see that through to a point where it's sustainable for the short term. Um, in terms of Santa, like where we started, actually it started from, I wanted to do generative art myself. So I actually started in the, like it's very fitting. I'm a designer um, and I program. Like I feel like for most designers who program, like it's very appealing, the idea of doing generative art. And I started playing around. I, I've wrote stuff. I've never like released a generative art project, but that was more my entry into it than being a collector. Although I bought collections that were generative art, I didn't actually know so much 12 months ago, um, the ecosystem. Like I definitely, I bought screens, for example, knew nothing about art blogs when I bought screens. Um, I was just visually very appealing. I thought it was a great collection. I still think it's a great collection. Um, and, and yeah, I got into it from starting down that approach on the side. Um, and when we started building Sansa, what kind of happened is we built a retail investor tool, like an analytics tool called Watchtower. Um, and all analytics tools were kind of hit this natural point where it was like, either you go and do something like Blur. This is a little bit pre-Blur, but you kind of go, it was very clear, I think, to anyone building at that time, you would go down the route of Blur where you essentially don't charge customers like $100 a month, which was the business model of most of these analytics tools at the time. Um, you would instead gain a ton of market share for the traders, and then you would you know, make money through fees of a marketplace, whatever. Um, and it hit this natural point where you know we were kind of charging for Watchtower. It was doing very well for a period, and then the bear market hit. And you know, it just completely destroyed all these analytics tools. And we hit this natural convergence point where I was super interested in generative art. I think me and Matt in general were like, where do we go from here? And I think we both decided that we were looking at the bigger picture and we we're like, if we go down the market route, then we have to go after something similar to what Blur has done. We have to go out, raise a lot of money. It becomes a race to the bottom of like who can create the fastest indexer, who can create the fastest. And we were well aware of these tools because we've like built some of them already. Um, 
but it felt very race to the bottom. There's always someone that's going to squeeze like a few milliseconds on a mint faster or, you know, a, a better system for flashbots essentially to kind of like power through mints. It just felt like someone but it was hard to build them out in that system. And we didn't also, we weren't very degen. Like we didn't want to go and spend three to five years building a degen business. And I think we looked at it and we were thinking, well, how can we build something within an area that we're happy to be in for, for years at a time? And we both super interested in art in general. I, I have a background in, um, in obviously doing art stuff, but also, you know, very passionate about design and art. Um, and that's where we started kind of playing around a little bit more and making a marketplace around art seemed it just kind of tied into our interest at the time and was something that we were heavily focused on. And at this point you are web three full time, right? Yes. Yes. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. So when did you decide to like, when was the locked in? Okay. We're, we're building Sansa and how did you come up with the name? I've been curious about this. Yeah. So the Sansa name is from a lot of people reference the Game of Thrones character, um, which I think maybe had some influence in it, to be honest, it probably did. It really, when when picking names for projects, I think I'm looking for something that's like, in terms of branding, it's just, is it owned? Is it, I, I like something that does have a reference sometimes. I think it can be problematic, but something that's so far off, like the Game of Thrones character, it's not so huge of a reference that it's mentally owned, but it's enough that it clicks in people's heads. And I think we just thought like, you know, people say Sansa, it's more sticky, right? Because people have a reference image to already put to that. Um, but also it's more about, you know, what's a short name? It's easy to say in multiple different languages. Like it's relatively straightforward. It's like two, um, two syllable. It's just, yeah, it's, it's simple. It's easy. And I think that's what we were looking for. It was, it was pretty random to be honest with you. It's just kind of like a few key metrics. There was other names that we tried. I can't remember exactly, but it, it comes down to like domains not being available and all sorts of stuff like that. The classic. Yeah. Fair, fair. So when did you all uh, decide to, when did you commit to it and, and when did you launch? Yeah. So we decided to build the business think um september um september last year we i i'd gone out and i'd written this thread on art blocks that I, I was trying essentially to get more like make people more aware of art blocks because i'd recently discovered it and i thought it was fascinating but i also thought that like there was all these areas people didn't know about with art blocks like the systems how curated versus playground worked at the time so i wrote this thread on hey like here's how art blocks works um, and it did really well and, and people really liked it and it got us more interested in that ecosystem. And when I was writing that thread, I had to ask as part of my research, like, I was trying to figure out certain questions, like, you know, what are the most popular art box collections of all time? Um, what are the art box collections in curated that have done X, Y, Z? Um, how can I follow? And I found that from my perspective, it just felt like there was no solution this article, which is like a great analytics tool, but from a marketplace point of view, when I was looking around, it just felt like the art scene was super fragmented and not just art blocks in general, but it was hard for me to get all this information in, in one place and OpenSea just wasn't cutting it for me either. Um, so yeah, we decided kind of September, I, I called Matt up and I was like, listen, I think there's an opportunity for us to build. I think we should go for something try and build something more exciting, something bigger. Um, but I think first off, like the real key problem we're going to attack is right now it's hard to go and discover data just around art blocks, specifically within the context of a marketplace, like not super analytical, but just that mix of, of a marketplace where you can go find out all the top collections, what's moving, what isn't moving, um, how you can kind of explore them in a better way than traditionally is supported. Um, and, and bring that discoverability. And that's where we started. I, I called in, we decided, and we built the first version, put it out in like three and a half, four weeks. Um, so it was really quick turnaround. We got very lucky. I think um, a big part of businesses is timing when it comes to infrastructure. And we got very lucky that Reservoir at the, at the time had like just launched and they provide great infrastructure tooling that makes it a lot quicker. 
Um, so we're able to get something out in like four weeks, which is previously unheard of. Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, I have so many questions for you from, from the builder standpoint, but I will hold on those. I want to first say, it's amazing that you got it out so fast and jumped on the opportunity. Also timing wise, there wasn't really an art marketplace. I mean, there was Archipelago, but I think by then it was sort of, I don't know exactly when they shut down. I want to say it was November, but that timing seems to have aligned quite well also. And yeah. You make a you make a really good point about open scene discoverability because this is actually the same or similar problem I would say that we had when why we started Collectors Corner, much longer name. Good point about the uh, other countries and whatnot, but I love the alliteration. What can I say? I can't stop. Yeah. But coming back to this problem of discoverability, I mean, we were a little bit more downstream, but I was like, okay, you know, you want a Meridian, but like, which one, how do I even start to think about it? And hence the start of like conversing about this and going into it. But I think that people still kind of default to open sea or they go through different inefficient fragmented sources to figure out what they should be buying or where they need to look or even understanding the landscape. And so that's amazing that you have that thread for breaking down art blocks. I would love to see it, although I, I guess they, they changed their model a little bit, but I'd love to share it. I think like it'd be awesome for people to see it because we have a lot of new people coming in gen art all the time. And well, that's a whole other question of, of measuring that, but maybe this is a great time to share Sansa on the screen so we can show off really the features you have and how that can help people with their collecting. Yeah, 100%. All right, so let me go ahead and I will share my screen over here. And yeah, maybe uh, I'll, I'll just kind of ask you some questions and, and you can guide us. So where do you think people who are not, you know, they're not necessarily coming to buy something yet, but they want to see what they might want to buy. Where would you direct them? Yeah. So I think there's two things, right? There's like primary and secondary. So if you first scroll down, um, one thing that's, super interesting about Sansa is we aggregate primary drops. Um, so I think most marketplaces are kind of moving more end-to-end -end in this case, like they have drops and Sansa aggregates drops across like multiple different platforms today. But you can see here, there's a couple um, vertical crypto art drops happening soon. Then there's some art box drops and we're gonna kind of expand out over this over time. So you can pull that fragmented primary experience that's all over the place into one kind of simple, easy place to see what's dropped and what's just about to drop. And um, it's a great way to find new things. Um, I, I would kind of start here and, and experiment if I was looking to get into something. If I wanted to go and discover like in general and just completely browse, we have, if you click explore on the top. So Santa has like really deep explore here for supported partners. Um, so if you open up the filter on the left, yeah, so we have like, Right now, we support Artbox and Bright Moments, um, a, a bunch of different of these kind of like top primary platforms. And if you kind of click into Artbox, for example, um, you can see, yeah, so there's a bunch of breakdowns here, both from Artbox experimentations to their collaborations with Pace. You can like really dive into these different pieces. And one thing that's pretty hard to do on traditional broader markets is, let's say if you click on Curated, um, you can go with a particular series here as they kind of built them out and see one thing for newcomers that might be interesting is maybe start with series one and move your way through and you can kind of see the evolution of art books over time right like series one is the first set of collections obviously the famous chromie and jeff's construction token um these like really early kind of the original artwork projects and then as they sort of go through um all the way through to series eight and what has now just become generally curated um is, is super interesting. Uh, one thing you can do as well is on the top right, you can see floor high to low um, and filter for open. So a lot of art blocks collections are still open. Um, and there's like a bunch of here. So if you go to like presents, for example, um, obviously not many, uh, there's no curated collections that are available to mint, but there's a ton of art blocks presents collections that are still available to mint. You can still go and mint these on the art blocks website and you know, for a lot of people, it's it's great to kind of go through that experience for the first time of like minting a piece of generative art and getting something unique and, you know, getting your, your own piece, right? Um, there's a ton of great stuff here. And then you can filter them on the top right from floor to supply. 
Um, so if you want to ask questions like of the Artbox curated collections or of Bright Moments collections, you know, what collections have the highest floor, what have the lowest floor, what have the highest or lowest supply, um, you can do that really easily from here and, and sort of deep dive into these different platforms, what they've released. Uh, it's definitely a, a good starting point for people to kind of browse around and explore. Yeah, this is awesome. I use this explore feature for folks listening because I try to think about what's undervalued, what hasn't moved. Uh, you know, the minting open, I haven't even thought about that. So that's a great one to look at as well. And I don't know how much you can talk about this yet, but I think it's public. You you guys are integrating brain drops. Is that correct? Yes, we are integrating brain drops. Yeah. So we'll the plan for Santa really is to expand, you know, we want to expand and uncover as much of the emerging digital art ecosystem as we can. Uh, I think there's a ton of things. We're, we're talking closely to artists and anyone that's got recommendations that's interested, we have like a place uh, in our Discord, you can go and submit collections for artists. Um, and yeah, we'll we'll look through them. We're, we're trying to expand as, as quickly as possible. And then we'll move in the not too distant future to a more curated system where other people can kind of bring their own collections onto Sansa. Um, and artists can start to, you know, build their own, their own collections directly into Sansa, which I think makes a ton of sense. No, I love that. I love that you're being art artist first. I think that's huge. And even as, as we were talking about different, I guess, markets within the NFT space, I remember even like, I, I wanted to respond to you earlier, so I'll do it now. When we were considering focusing on generative art, I mean, I just love gen art, but back then the PFP market seemed way, way bigger. And it, it seems to be shifting. Not that I have any numbers on this. I don't, but I'm pretty sure the gen art market is growing and interest in gen art is growing while interest in PFPs, not sure where it's going, whether it's like going up or not, but certainly gen art seems to be growing. So that's super exciting. Anyways, I wanted to go back and mention that. And I also want to show off some of the features that I use a lot in Sansa. So I think the trending collections is fantastic. Trending art artist is really great. I mean, people don't, group things in artists as much. And even on OpenSea, you would think they would group things by ecosystem, whether you're, you know, Doodles or Board Ape Yacht Club or whatever, but that's uh, certainly awesome to see here. The drops feature, I, I also use this myself as we look at what's coming up and what we might want to recommend to our listeners. Um, new floor listings, this is fantastic. I do this on OpenSea all the time. For folks listening, you can really kind of figure out who's trying to sell and who you might accept the lower offer that you could give them on that. And uh, the recently collected is also great. Uh, notable collectors. Uh, this is this is a good one too. I don't use this one as much. I haven't gotten as much into uh, following collect other collectors yet, but it's something that's on my mind. So this is like great to keep in mind. And I also want to show people some of the features you have when you get onto a collection page. So I'm going to pick Love, one of my favorite collections, which you all also did the primary launch for, um, as I as I recall. And, and we can we can get to that as we talk a little bit more about royalties and, and what's happening going forward. But I want to show people what's really cool is when you get onto the traits, you and by the way, Sansa is not nor Jack are paying me for this. I'm I'm truly saying this because like it's just really useful. A lot of times when you don't know what the metadata refers to in a collection, you can click around and open C and you kind of click around like one at a time, be like, okay, like what does this mean or whatever? And then you see the results and then you try to figure out what visual distinction, if any, is driven by that characteristic. But Sansa has this awesome thing where you can just hit explore and it groups them together for you, also giving you the cheapest price for something within that grouping. And this is also super useful for something like palettes, like I'm demonstrating here. Sometimes the trait doesn't have a visual distinction and, or maybe you won't be able to notice it, but this is still like super, super helpful, huge time saver, especially as you're trying to explore a collection. And then the other thing, uh, well, I'll let you, you talk through stats, but the other thing I want to show people is exploring the algorithm. So uh, sorry if I went too fast, but if you come over here and you click on explore algorithm, you can generate more instances of that algorithm. And it, it can take a little while to generate depending on your computer and your internet connection and whatnot and, and the algorithm itself. But, uh, well, there we go. So you just, you just click on it and 
you know, these were not outputs that ended up in the final set, but these are still examples of the algorithm that can be fun. And a lot of artists are now using this for competitions or just like community engagement after their release. So that's really cool as well. So, so sorry to to steal the show here a little bit, but I wanted to show this off because these are things that honestly are super useful and I love them. So people should know about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it might be easier to do something like Fontana for this. I don't know what's playing up here. It seems like that's been a little bit um, not quite yeah. working as it should. Yeah, it's, it's sometimes it's my computer too. There we go. Oh, wow. That's an awesome one. I wish uh, I'd yeah, I was gonna that. say that's a good that's a good first generation. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And and how about the stats page? How do you think about these rankings and the activity? Yeah, so I think rankings are, are interesting and they're they're important, um, at least for people to just kind of see. I think one good thing about Sansa is and over the next two to three years, as we see digital art expand, um focus is a, is actually a key part of it and going to a place and seeing okay what are the top trending art collections as a collector of art specifically and someone that's less interested in pfps and play to earn projects and, and the rest of it like me being able to see these things not scattered in and out of a list of 100 other collections is i think really useful um being able to filter them and, and kind of see that ranking list um in one focus place i, I think really works for me and I think that's kind of a, a big part of the benefit over the next sort of little while as, as digital art expands, being able to just see specifically what's moving within the art ecosystem. The other thing that I want to talk about, uh, you know, we were going to cover everything you all are doing right now. We mentioned this in our show, actually, maybe last week, but you are going to 0% royalties for six months. I'm curious Please. as to... Oh, I'm sorry. Zero yeah, percent fees. fees. Yeah. 0%, yep, I we missed pay the, full royalties every time. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Sorry. Your royalties, the marketplace fees. Um, yeah. So you're going to zero percent marketplace fees. So congrats on that. How how are you guys pulling that off? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that. Um, so one thing that we hear a lot is, you know, Santa today is a is a niche marketplace, right? Like we're competing for a small subset of the market and no one even knows really that market size either. Um, we don't know how many collectors of art blocks are art blocks collectors versus how many people see an art box piece trending on OpenSea and, and buy it with no, you know, no prior knowledge that it's an art blocks piece, right? Um, they just see trending NFT collection and, and they purchase. So right now we're kind of competing in that smaller, smaller niche market. And I don't think anytime soon will, like fees make sense as a viable business. I think what's likely to happen is platforms go more end to end. Um, and we're starting to see that already, like big marketplaces are starting to experiment in this. Um, OpenSea's started doing their own drops. Um, all sorts of different platforms are starting to slowly move to encompass both the primary and the secondary. And it's because I think there's a bigger moat around primary than there is around secondary, right? Like then we'll, Blur has its thing going right now and there's nothing necessarily stopping a, a new platform appearing with a similar great interface. Maybe it's a bit faster and they are slightly cheaper or they have a slightly earlier token unlock schedule. Like these things are difficult and it's difficult to build a moat around secondary. And I think primary is a great sort of retention driver. Um, having people come back again and again to check what new drops are happening and have those drops not necessarily be available elsewhere is um, I think a, a big driver currently and a, and a big moat for, for these businesses. And we see Sansa as potentially experimenting in, in that round, right? Like we currently aggregate primary for a bunch of the top platforms. Um, I think something like that is a far more sustainable kind of like end-to-end -end business. But in the short term, we know that fees aren't going to be the driver. They're not going to make the difference. Um, so it makes more sense for us to kind of like cut those fees out and just purely focus on building the, the best product we can for collectors in the short term and, and artists as well. That makes a lot of sense. And that also answers the question of why stay with the royalties. I mean, besides the obvious, I think, ethical considerations of, of people trying to make a living and that's the agreement you get into with them, in particular with artists, it strikes me that a lot of these other marketplaces are getting rid of 
royalties because they want to drive more volume to secondary and eventually extract fees from that secondary. And to your point, if if you are not reliant on that in the short term, then you don't you don't have to compete in that. What clearly seems like a race to the bottom to me, uh, if I'm being honest, uh, because you can prop up these other marketplaces with VC money, launch a token, sustain that for six months or something like that. And then the next one comes up and it, it just feels like a, a never ending game of whack-a-mole. Okay. Apologies for a little bit of technical difficulties there, but we're back. And Jack, I wanted to ask you, you've mentioned a couple of times, I mean, you're obviously very knowledgeable about the NFT marketplace and where things are going. And you're saying that a lot of folks, or you think that most folks are going to try becoming end to end. What does that mean? And why, what are the forces you think that will drive the industry in that direction? Yeah, I think on the marketplace side, um, we're seeing a trend of as as secondary becomes a harder moat to sustain. I think one thing platforms like OpenSea are thinking about is how they can uh, and and Santa is as well, right? Like we do primary drops. You can go and see aggregated drops across all these places. Primary is a is a much better sort of retention driver and and potentially more of a moat than secondary is currently. And as secondary races to the bottom, I think you'll see um, more people look to primary as the same, like OpenSea recently released their drops product. I think it's in beta right now, but I think you're going to see them trying to move to the end to end of capturing buyers at the primary when they want to, you know, mint that first piece and then, you know, driving those buyers through to secondary while they're already in the experience. Right. Um, I think that's going to be a, a good way for them to look at taking that primary volume and, and pushing it through into secondary. Um, I think that's generally what we're seeing. And also I know that some of the smaller, like more vertical, um, players, like individual players, let's say platforms and that sort of stuff. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of talk around niche marketplaces, which to some degree are basically small end-to-end marketplaces, right? Like you would go, you would mint your piece and also, hey, here is the option to buy on secondary as well. I think we'll see more and more of that pop up. I think in the you know, in the short term or, or in the next however long, you know, taking something like uh, Braindrops as an example, I was talking to Justin from Braindrops, and I was saying that now I think from their point of view, although Braindrops makes sense potentially to have a marketplace at some point, and and these things will pop up, and I'm sure it like that approach to some degree seems to make sense. I actually think what people will find is that there's still need necessarily for a collector to be able to go and shop in a more generalized place, right? And although I, I think we'll see industry vertical marketplaces far before we see like pure vertical marketplaces that work, um, if the goal of the business is to just capture, you know, an extra 5%, an extra 10% on their existing traffic, then potentially the idea that the majority of people are going to shop on secondary for these platforms just because it's purely that platform, I our experience with Sansa and uh, like the way that we believe that will play out, I don't see it happening that way. I think you're far more likely to see industry-specific verticals. So these like an art marketplace or a gaming-specific marketplace where they've been able to create a, a culture and a community where you can get all the things you want there, but it's vertical in the sense of it's you know within the niche of an industry like art or like gaming. Got it. Yeah, and it's it's a really. It's fascinating as we're seeing e-commerce play out too, right? Is it going to be Amazon marketplace or is it going to be a bunch of, you know, self-branded Shopify stores that people are are finding and going to? And I kind of personally agree with you. I think in the sense that we're going to have a decentralized world and in this decentralized world, there'll be different niches and different ecosystems. I mean, even look at us, right? Like using the information analogy, Collectors Corner, we're focused on generative art, dipping our toes a little bit into AI, I think it's interesting. I think that it is also generative, but I mean, covering everything seems like a tall task for anybody, whether it's content or meeting any of all the customers' needs. And I don't know, it strikes me that some of these primary platforms, say like a Braindrops, they don't necessarily want to create a marketplace and start doing other things. I'm sure there are some companies that are ambitious and want to be the one-stop shop, but most of them probably just want to meet those customers' needs and 
that was the only place uh, art blocks, for example, maybe that was the only way for them to do it without while preserving royalties. So they were like, fine, we'll create like a marketplace. Not that they necessarily like actually want to be running a marketplace and doing that business as it adds some complexity there. Yeah, there's definitely pros. Sorry, there's definitely pros to these, you know, these small platforms. I mean, Artbox isn't a small platform, but opposed to like an OpenSea or a, or a Blur or whatever, there's definitely pros to them having it. There is also an infrastructure is like the infrastructure cost of a marketplace is coming down the task of building, but there is still a, a fairly high cost of maintenance, right? With these platforms. And although it's becoming easier and easier to spin these things up, it's, I think it, again, it just comes back to the point of people today, like their workflow involves discoverability and there's no discoverability in a, in a purely vertical market. It's right. Like if someone spends every day going to discover what's new, what's happening, right? Like it's very difficult to get that person to remember like, oh, you're every day you go to this, this place, let's use OpenSea as today's example, right? But if you go to OpenSea every day to see what's new, what's trending or blur, what's new, what's trending, what's happening. And then a purely vertical marketplace is there. Most people aren't going to remember to be like, oh, I can buy this thing on that marketplace. This one thing, for that one specific use case. I don't think we're going to see that. I think in the short term, at least, I think it will capture some of the value. There is some workflows where people end up in that flow, but it's it's going to be less common. And I think they'll capture way less of their collector market even than potentially. And the overheads, like you said, the overheads for a business like that, like they don't want to run that. They don't want to have to manage that, but they do want a marketplace, I think, that aligns with their incentives and aligns with you know their artists and their collective incentives. Um, and that's the problem we're getting into on the bigger picture right now. Yeah, 100%. That's right. You heard it first. If you want discoverability, come to Collector's Corner. We will tell you where to go. And then go to Sansa because nice. we'll be talking about <laughs> art. No, that makes sense. Yeah. And from your observation, how much of the tech stack do you see marketplaces adding, right? Like, so you mentioned that you guys have some statistics, some things around discoverability. Do you see a lot of marketplaces starting to add content? Or do you think we're going to have kind of niche players that people then just borrow their APIs or, you know, essentially like license out whatever those niche uh, experts are at the various functions they provide. In what context? Like, so say for example, um, somebody comes out with some awesome like statistics. I mean, you already have a statistic, so this is not a great example, but do you think that a lot of marketplaces are going to just leverage the the charts and stats, et cetera, from this third-party provider or just build their own, right? And really try to be end-to-end. So like beyond primary and secondary sales, what else is part of the end-to-end stack in your mind? Oh, yeah. I think that the marketplace experience contains, I, in terms of if, if I think that people will move to do I think marketplaces will basically converge to mostly the same stats? Yes, for for like what I would call like consumer, like basic marketplaces. Obviously, marketplaces like Blur will converge to like more advanced stats, let's say. Um, but I think you'll see the same thing, right? You'll see a lot more DGen marketplaces all converging to a similar set of stats and analytics. Um, and I don't think there's necessarily a ton of I think there's, it's harder and harder again to create a moat there around those things. Um, it's about capturing the volume and having something. And that's where I think primary comes in really strong. It's content that I think is really interesting, like having the fresh new thing, having the valuable new thing and being able to allow customers to discover it. That's a much harder problem, I think. Um, you look at kind of like the marketplaces today and it's like a dump of everything and then what's moving on volume, which kind of works as a good proxy across everything. But when you get into, as the market expands and it's not just purely like, hey, I want to buy NFTs. It's like, I'm interested in art or I'm interested in these different sectors. Like that becomes more and more of a problem. Like it's hard. If you go on OpenSea and you click art, it will show you like doodles generator boxes, right? And it's like, it, this kind of like self-referential it'll show you all sorts of random things um and that is a way harder problem for the broad kind of show up everything marketplaces and i think you know new players will come up and it's about having that fresh content and being able to show them the interesting things that are happening like a lot of people today are focused on the alpha of 
basically uh, like the blur style trading thing. And it makes sense because it's 95% of the market. But there's something to be said for the alpha of like knowing a collection's happening before it's happening. Like you could have kind of figured out that Harvest recently by Perkwork, which is a great collection, um, would have done very well like weeks before it ever like showed up on the blur trending chart. And I think that's that point of discoverability of understanding what's going on across the space. Like a lot of the tools right now are focused on discovering something when it hits trending, right? Like as volume piles in, numbers go up and everyone's like, okay, let me jump on that as quick as possible. There's some value to be had in understanding what's going on ahead of time and, and seeing those different pieces. You could have seen the excitement around that weeks before it ever dropped, like way before we had like, thousands and thousands of generations of like out of bounds generations of people playing with the algorithm and like sharing it in, you know, our lots discord or Grailers discord. Um, that sort of stuff's easy to see, but it's hard to track. And I think as these things can like, as we see more vertical sort of marketplaces exist within industries, it's about bringing that fresh content build, bringing bringing that insight right into, into the marketplace. Yeah, that's amazing. That makes a ton of sense. And I actually would love to see those numbers sometime <laughs> at some point, because <laughs> you're right, that that is a perfect example. And that's actually a great transition because you see a lot of art uh, just being a marketplace. You, you talk to a lot of artists, like what is Jack the collector interested in? Like, what are you, what styles Ooh, wow. do you like? Which artists do you like? Any collections you want to call out? Yeah, I like Damn, I, I know I'm basically going to say everything that's not my bags. Um, so I, I need to okay. make sure to not to not plug my bags too much. But the um, I I like I'm a big fan of abstract um, of abstract stuff generally. There's some beautiful collections. I'm going to pull up Santa right now. Um, a couple that immediately spring to mind are um, everything Melissa's been doing recently, like the verse drop she recently did. I think I didn't actually get a chance to see it in person here in London, but it looked incredible. And I think seeing some of the like physical prints of some of these latest collections, it's crazy. They look so good. They're going to look so good on wall. I definitely think it's converging. Um, yeah, there's a ton of, oh, you're pulling up the same thing as me. Um, yeah, ex so Cosmic Ray, so Verse isn't currently on Santa. So I'm kind of plugging the collection we don't have here, but the... Um, yeah, I think there's a ton, right? Like I, I'm a big fan of Harvest. In terms of my personal taste, I think I prefer abstract. I prefer less focus on realism. Like I, I don't necessarily like landscapes and that sort of stuff is less of a thing for me. I, I know I just said Harvest, which is essentially landscapes, but um, I think landscapes and pieces like that are, are less of interest to me. I, I like one thing that I really like at the minute, and I think a big factor in my collecting is how like the new age of digital artists right curating their own sort of audience and building their own audience so like i, I mentioned melissa a minute ago but like melissa and harvey uh harvey rayner of course um james merrill by behind ori like i, I see like anna lucia like all, all of these people basically live on my twitter feed all the time because they know like I see a post by them and I like it every single time because I'm like, wow, they're working on amazing things and they're super cool. Um, like I want to be updated. I want to know when these people are dropping new things. I love that. Um, I, I kind of love that dynamic. I, I love the artists that are kind of going out of the way. There's a ton. I'm definitely missing a ton out here um, that I would love to shout out. We were actually, as we're recording this, I don't know if we can say when we're recording this, but as we're recording this, Metropolis just dropped, which is... Um, obviously it will show anyway in the rankings of course it's just really really good and uh, that's the latest art blocks and bright moments drop there's so many like renders game was great like these are all kind of um that i'm talking about here there's a ton that that go back actually i think looks amazing as a print potentially like i want one for my wall absolutely um we have a feature on Santa, which is like you can preview a piece in a gallery setting, um, which is like a, a fun little little feature. But Bosk looks incredible in, in like a gallery setting. Oh, uh, is there a? Can you show us how to do that? Yeah, so you see gallery preview there. There's a little toggle on the left hand side. Ah, there it is. Okay. 
Oh yeah. So you can kind of see what a piece looks like within a gallery, um, which is just a cool way for, I, I think it's just a, a fun little way of, of really sort of telling people and showing people that like these things are real art and they do look like real art. And there is definitely some barrier there from like the trad world to the digital world for, you know, I don't think, I think digital art is art and digital art will in the you know next five years become art um or just be considered art and i think we're seeing this this way there's some incredible collections for sure yeah 100 percent. one one that i'll show you that i don't know if you're uh, aware of um do you know about monogrid no i'm not aware of monogrid so this is an artist named kim assendorf and they're going to be in the bright moments tokyo release and they and, and I'm sorry if this is wrong, but from my understanding, they pioneered this type of art called pixel sorting. And so it, it's a little bit niche right now. These things are completely locked up. So Monogrids is the original. And then there's a couple of collections on FX hash that are similar. Some of them have color, some of them don't, but similar in the sense that they use the same pixel sorting style. But to your point about cultivating a following, I actually own one of these. So full disclosure, I got it at way more expensive than I should have, but I waited too long to buy one. But Kim has uh, a Discord also. So there's a Discord there. And speaking of like kind of cultivating your audience, it, this is one that reminded me of that. And also you said you like more abstract stuff. Not This is not exactly abstract, but uh, this is a cool one that I thought would be good to have on your radar as well. Yeah, I need more. I'm trying right now to convert my walls to like my wall pieces to like generative pieces and i'm unsure i did want uh i was gonna put get a contractions print because i don't think we'll we'll see prints anytime soon but um but yeah i'm trying to convert i've got this up here which is a joe miro print which is pretty cool actually i like this one um but yeah there's a ton actually the pixel sorting algorithm you mentioned i i think one person to check out in this it doesn't look like this specifically but that same algorithm like a pixel sort of algorithm uh nadia bremer actually has done i've seen a ton of cool stuff from her um i'm pretty sure maybe she'll maybe she'll correct me and, and say it's not pixel sorting but i i think some of her sort of more recent stuff is is utilizing a lot of pixel sort algorithms awesome we'll we'll we'll, we'll check her out and link to it uh but Jack, I, I wanted to, I know it's getting late over there, so I wanted to just wrap things up and and thank you so much for your time and, and for everything you're building. I mean, no joke, I really, really enjoy Sansa and I enjoy what you're doing there. I enjoy how you're evolving. I enjoy how you're keeping up with the issues in the industry with the um, 0% market fees and also making it very clear that you will be following artists' royalties and honoring all of them on your platform. So. I think it's amazing that you're doing that. I know certainly the Braindrops team just sitting in their Discord, I'm not speaking on their behalf, just as just publicly based on what I was reading, they seem very relieved to have this as an option and very uh, taken aback by the open sea shift. So I think what you're doing is like an amazing service to the industry and also is a really cool product. And I know I certainly want to pick your brain about where you see the industry going. But Thank you again for your time. Where's the best place for folks to to find you if they want to reach you? Um, I mean, I'm. You can find me in in Sansa's Discord, like specifically if you're trying to look for me. But you know, Sansa.xyz, we have a Discord, um, and then yeah, I'm also. You'll see me in kind of the generative art. You'll see me in Graylers or in Block Talk um, in in the Artbox Discord. So I'm I'm regularly hanging around there when I when I get time in between building. So. Yeah, you can you can find me about for sure. Perfect, perfect. Well, we'll get this out soon. The people need to know about Sansa. Thanks again and really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me.